Well, it's still surprising to me when I talk to Christians who have never heard about the book that Sinclair Ferguson wrote. It's kind of a classic, but it's a very important book because it deals with the most practical issues of life. The book is entitled The Christian Life, A Doctrinal Introduction. Now, what's interesting about that is that even though this is a uh, a book that deals with practical issues in the Christian life, notice that Sinclair Ferguson doesn't hesitate also to bring in the idea of doctrine. And that is really why this book excels as a book on practical theology, discipleship, pastoral theology, because even though it is a very, very practical book, nevertheless, it is rooted and grounded in theology, in doctrine. And that's the best kind of discipleship. Of course, that's the best kind of growth in the Christian life. Quality growth in the Christian life is not devoid of theology. It's not devoid of doctrine, but it's built on doctrine, and it understands how to incorporate doctrine and practice, or orthodoxy, orthopraxy. And so we're going to be going through uh, chapters of this book, maybe not every single episode, but I intend... Uh, to go through uh, a number of these chapters uh, just to start us off in an exploration of Sinclair's book. This is a book that was published initially back in the 80s, I think back in 1987, or 1981, excuse me, and it was reprinted in 2017. And so we want to get into this book as a discipleship tool for you to enjoy, for our listeners to benefit from. And in order to do that, I want to bring back to the show both Kevin Moore and Mike Tiemann, uh good friends of mine that, uh, and also pastors that are in the business of discipleship, pastoral ministry, and practical theology. And so Guys, all three of us are pastors. We all understand the value of discipleship, and we all understand how important it is to do discipleship right, and without doctrine and theology, you can't do it right. And so I want to get your guys' initial thoughts uh, just as we uh, launch into a study of practical theology, and specifically in dealing with this book. Mike, um, what what were your initial thoughts as you approached this book? Yeah, Amelia, hey, it's great to be back with you and Kevin once again. And as I was reading this book, a uh, few pages into it, I started realizing this is a significant piece of work. Uh, and it's, it's vastly important because oftentimes we relegate doctrine to the academic world. It's, it, that belongs in the institution and the ivory towers, but you know, in the church, it's, it's just about the heart. It's about the practical Christian living. And what Sinclair Ferguson is seeking to do and seeking to explain is that the doctrine is is the very source that impacts our hearts and and enables us to succeed in life, to thrive uh, in this this Christian living. And so just reading through it just a few pages in, I'm like, this book is quickly moving up on my list of important, significant books that I need to encourage other people to read. Definitely, Mike, I would agree with you too. Uh, you know, even the first couple of pages, just seeing the importance of doctrine and, and how that impacts theology, impacts how we live. And, you know, I know Sinclair Ferguson gave the example of just uh, Christ and his Sermon on the Mount. And you could take, uh, take the passage on anxiety. Well, who's God? He'll provide for you. He's a loving father. I mean, you just everything accords with knowing God and, and who he is. And, you know, even in the first couple of pages, I actually thought of a couple of verses here. It was First Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, and it says about the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with godliness. Just how, how orthodoxy uh, impacts orthopraxy, you know? And, um, you know, also in First Timothy 1.10, uh, Paul writing Timothy says, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so I love this book just for the fact that the emphasis on doctrine, and as Mike said, sometimes people think, oh, that's for the academic world. But, um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Emilio, 
rightly discipling people, rightly um, teaching them what Christ has commanded involves teaching them the truths of God's word and who God is. Mm. Amen. Yeah, I think that's one of the glorious things about the resurgence in Reformed theology is that you have an emphasis now on the doctrinal where we came out of, at least in uh, the American church, right? We came out of really decades of sort of seeker-sensitive evangelicalism, not that that's gone away, but that there is no question, matter of fact, that, you know, that the Reformed movement made a major comeback in the, uh, oh, probably especially in the 90s, into the early 2000s, there was a major resurgence in Reformed theology, especially because of the efforts of men like John Piper, R.C. Sproul, and then later uh, John MacArthur to further the cause of Reformed theology. And central to Reformed theology is catechizing the church, which just means teaching the church doctrine, getting them to understand systematically what Christianity uh, and what the Christian worldview is all about. At the very beginning of this chapter, on page one, actually, of this book, he talks about a common mistake that we can all make, and that is the common mistake of thinking that the deeper things in Christianity are the heavy doctrinal things, the abstract or contemplative theology or something like that. But really, as Sinclair Ferguson says that, in fact, the deeper things, if he says, if there even are such things, are really the old basic truths of the gospel. And wouldn't you guys agree that in the process of discipleship, especially as pastors, we see this, that we spend a lot of our time reminding people of basic truths, of the things they should know, of things that people have taken for granted, and that we're sitting there steadily counseling and teaching and admonishing and correcting and encouraging folks to go back to basic truths. Um, yeah, what, what would you guys say to that? Yeah, I think that's, you, you nailed it on the head. I, I was reading this chapter thinking, how many times in a counseling session do I just ask people the basic question of, how is your Bible reading? Right? And, and, Without fail, usually it's, yeah, I read it like a couple months ago. And, you know, this, the practice of theology, the practice of getting into God's word, um, is, is oftentimes null and void. And the practical result of that is, well, here you are, you know, and that theology, that rich doctrine in, in pastoral ministry, you know, I always love that phrase that they, they called the Puritans, uh, the physicians of the soul, as they sought to take high lofty theology and bring it to the people in practical, practical ways. Sometimes, you know, it, it's, it's rough reading as they're, dialing into such a fine point of application on every single part and every single aspect of somebody's life of how the theology should impact them and, and, and train them. And it doesn't, it's not high and lofty. It's, it's basic. God is love. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. <laughs> yeah, no, amen. And I think that, I think that what's important is also what Sinclair mentions that if we don't do that, if we don't go back, right, and teach people this and, and, and emphasize doctrine, even in the most practical issues, there's a biblical illiteracy that can happen. Mm. And man, are we suffering today from biblical, and I would even add this, biblical and doctrinal illiteracy. And I think maybe even further than that, guys, and I, I, th I think about this because I've preached it and I know there's been times where even in the middle of a sermon— I'll make this point, that we're not even, in many ways, we're not even living in sort of low doctrinal times, but really, guys, if we're honest, anti-doctrinal times, where a lot of Christians, we're talking about Christians in the church, are, by and large, many of them, when you start getting down to, hey, we're calling you to doctrine, it's amazing how many Christians are really actually, in their core, anti-doctrinal. They don't want to subject themselves 
to doctrine. And so, Kevin, I want you to speak to that a little bit, if you could. Yeah, absolutely. Um, even just going back to what you said and just kind of adding to what you had said earlier, too, is just the fact of, um, you know, in counseling, reminding people of the truths of God's word. And, and Mike, as you said, too, just asking that question, are, are you in the word of God? You know, it, as you were talking, it, it reminded me of Second Peter chapter one, because, again, uh, Peter here is talking about knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness. But he says this, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. And here it is, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And so a lot of times it's reminding people the truths of God's word. And and that's and that's what we're seeing today. We're, we're seeing um, that idea that doctrine isn't isn't as important. It's, it's kind of as for the, the high and lofty to get into this and to, to really think on these things. But, you know, Psalm chapter one tells us to meditate on the word of God. And we have to understand, even as I mentioned, you know, right at the beginning of 1 Timothy 6, 3, that it's a teaching sound doctrine accords with godliness. And, and unfortunately, I think we're seeing in our churches today that people aren't realizing that and they don't know that. And that's why it's so important that we, again, emphasize the importance of the truths of God's word and how it correlates to one's life. Um, I can give you an example here. Um, you know, usually when I'm, when I have somebody coming in for counseling, oftentimes they, they want that quick fix. They want kind of that life hack, you know, tell me something uh, profound that will make my marriage better. And, you know, I take them to Ephesians chapter five, you know, if it's a husband and I said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I mean, think on that. Pray on that. How did Christ love love the church? He gave Himself for her. And again, it, it's it's not this. Hey, just be nice to her. It's it's no. Think deeply on these things and let that flow out of your heart. Now, the truths of God's word and the truths of seeing what Christ has done for His church and your marriage is a picture of that. Hmm. Yeah. No. For sure. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, you know, this book that I love about this book is Sinclair Ferguson will set your mind on the right track of thinking and it's in the, in the right way. And by just even reminding you of basic stuff that you may have forgot or that you may overlook things that are so obvious that you're like, Oh yeah, of course. I mean, if you think of what he says on page two of this book regarding the saints of, you know, many of what he calls, you know, the greatest theologians, the martyrs. Uh, he says that many of them were intellectually gifted preachers. And he says, those of the lowliest gifts, but spiritual power, all perhaps without exception, have been students of, of the doctrines of the Bible, and therein lies the secret of their usefulness. In other words, what Sinclair's saying is, when you look back at some of the eminent saints in the history of the church, all of them without exception have been serious students of the Bible. And I thought, wow, that is a, that is a great and profound point. That is and it true. And yeah. it reminds us about what I call, or what you know, has been called, but I like to often point this out, and that is the principle of imitation in the Bible, right? Um, I've done a study on my Bible software where I locate everywhere what the principle of imitation exists, whether we imitate God, imitate Christ, imitate the, an apostle, imitate churches, imitate one another, follow Christ, follow me as I follow Christ, as Paul says, right? But it reminds us that, yeah, if we want, if we look at other Christians, which wouldn't you guys agree often happens in the Christian life, Christians looking at other Christians and saying, man, why does that believer have it? Why do they get it and I don't get it? Or why are they walking in a way where they seem to just be enjoying Christianity and enjoying the Lord and I don't? But we have to remember that what Sinclair's saying here is that most of the people that you look at that you would want to imitate them, they have a, they have a very serious approach to Scripture. And so I don't know, Mike, if you wanted to speak to that, but that stood out to me very, very much. 
Yeah, that was a a profound point that Dr. Ferguson is is making of our heroes of the faith being students and deep thinkers of the word of God in their daily life, which set them up for success when things got, I mean, we're talking about some of these guys got put to death, you know, and they went through crazy trials. I was, I was actually thinking about the martyrdom of, of Ridley and La, uh, Latimer uh, in the, what is that? In the 15, 1555. And, and there's a famous quote that Ridley, or, or sorry, yeah, Latimer said, but Ridley right before this, he says, be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flames or else strengthen us to abide, uh, to abide it. Mm-hmm. Right. What a great quote that's based upon what he knows of God. Right, God's either going to quench these flames because He has the power to do so, or He's going to provide us the grace needed to burn well. Right, and then Latimer's uh, response is, "Be of good comfort, Mister Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle." Then he says, "By God's grace." Right. He, he, he likens like what, what kind of theology do you need to have as you're literally getting lit on fire to say, by God's grace, we're going to light a candle, light a flame, a torch that's going to burn throughout England for, for decades, decades to come. Right. And, and on a foundation of, of rich theologies, J.C. Ryle says no one of the reformers uh, probably sowed the seed of Protestant doctrine so widely and effectively amongst the middle and lower class as Latimer. Right. Like a, a man of rich theology of, of sowing that seed. And, and our culture today is is I think you, you said it perfectly a few minutes ago. It's it's almost anti anti-scholarship, anti-Bible, right? We came, I came out of a system that would, would mockingly call seminary cemetery, right? It's where you go to, to die. Um, you know, there's, there's some churches in our, our community here in Southern California that as summertime comes out, I'm waiting for the, the promotional videos. So they're going to do movie, uh, movie Sundays where they're going to play. I know last year they played back to the future and some clips from, I think lost world and they draw, you know, some, I, I hate to say theological points from it because I don't think that's what they're doing, right? And we talked about last week the sufficiency of scripture, right? When we believe that, when we believe the Bible is enough, the Bible is sufficient, right? That has, that has applications that stretches so that you can get martyred well. You could, as Kevin said, you could love your wife well, right? And everything in between. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I'd love to hear Amen. your guys' thoughts on this too, is, um, you know, as we're talking about, obviously these men who knew God and, and they impacted the world and impacted their personal lives. But um, obviously I got my thoughts, but uh, man, I want to hear your guys' thoughts on uh, why do you think there is so much biblical illiteralist ir- I can't even say the word here, biblical <laughs> illiteracy. There we go. All right. In the American church today. Like, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on that and what you guys think. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I've been working on a project uh, that deals with pretty much precisely that. Uh, and it just, honestly, it has, it, it's a combination of things, almost like the, 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 the uh, ingredients have come together for a, per- a perfect storm, right? There's cultural issues that have to be taken into account. There's political issues that have to be taken into account. There's socioeconomic issues that have to be taken into account before you even get to the culture of the church, let's say, at the turn of the 20th century. But certainly by the time that you get to the sexual revolution, Christianity and evangelicalism is entering a time in which it is attempting to appeal to the world in order for the world to find the church appealing enough to come to the church. And this, of course, going all the way back to, uh, you know, Willow Creek and Bill Hybels and especially the heyday of, you know, the seeker-sensitive movement in the 80s and 90s, where we, we almost lost sight of Billy Graham, 
If Billy Graham, as some historians would note, kind of marks the beginning of the evangelical movement, right? Right around the time of Christianity Today and, and, uh, and, and those kinds of things, you know, uh, Carl F. Henry and, and, and the work that he did on God, uh, revelation, and, and authority, you know, what happened was is that the world or the church suddenly saw that the world could be reached through techniques. And so they abandoned scripture in place of the kind of techniques that seemed to be working for other things, and all of those things were mainly consumer. They were market-driven. And nobody has done a better job in exposing all of this than David Wells. And in his books, uh, God in the Wasteland, No Place for Truth, God in the Whirlwind, these kind of books. Um, you know, that's exactly what David Wells is saying, is that the church in the 80s and 90s mastered the art of the marketing ethos. And that has given rise to, hey, we don't really need to splice theology and theological specificity. What we need to do is come up with the right technique so that we become effective. So we, it, you know, towards the latter end of the 20th century, we became absolute, absolute pragmatists. And pragmatists don't like theology <laughs> because it's not pragmatic. And so in a, in a weird way, the American church in many, in many areas, especially the, the big movements, the masses, they became immune to theology. They were immunized from, uh, you know, from receiving doctrinal instruction because they were told from the pulpit what classifies as success is this marketing ethos and this idea that the more consumers come in, for whatever reason, the more success you're having. And then suddenly here comes a resurgence in Reformed theology and all of a sudden, we're calling people to very, very heavy theological truths. And honestly, when I say the perfect storm, suddenly we have an entire generation of American Christians who cannot even sustain a theological conversation. So that really, I think, has to be taken into account when we think about the rise of biblical illiteracy in our time. Yeah, Mike, I'd love to hear from you. I mean, you've been a high school pastor for over a decade now. Um, what are you seeing in the young people, man? Wow. I mean, I, I can't really say it much better than what Emilio just said. I think there's this rise in consumerism, consumer Christianity, and this pressure upon pastors to produce people in seats, you know, uh, and and when a pastor fails to do that, well, let's remove him and get a more hipster, skinny jean wearing, you know, tattooed sleeved uh, guy in there, a charismatic, you know, personality that's going to entertain people into the church. And I'm using that term loosely um, because of pragmatism, right? The success of a church is how many people show up. Right, not the theological richness and depth of of the people. And let me let me quote this, you know, uh, because Paul says this in Second Timothy uh, four three. He says, "For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Right, they won't endure it. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions." Right. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And, and in, in the realm of youth ministry, uh, I mean, this is, th this is commonplace, right? Youth pastors are, um, they're program managers, they're, they're social, you know, um, uh, program, you know, creating social things for teenagers to get together and interact with other teenagers and to actually teach a teenager theology, right? And using big words is, well, you're going to get letters and emails, you know, <laughs> and, and my heart is I always tell parents is, Hey, look, these teenagers, I have teenagers right now that are in calculus, teenagers that are taking French, teenagers that are in AP history, 
They're learning high things, and yet we can't expect them to learn what the Trinity is. Mm. Mm. Like that's that's crazy, right? No, we can we can elevate the bar. We can lift that bar because I found teenagers and adults they often rise to that bar with especially with teenagers and kids. We've set the bar so low for them, uh, they they don't even know there's a bar there. Right. And we've just done nothing but try to entertain them, um, which is why there is a uh, <laughs> rampant problems um, in mm. churches all over the place, because we're not we're not catechizing. We're not teaching doctrine. Um, we're entertaining goats. Yeah. Mm. And that's that's true. Mm. I mean, you think, too, is what you guys said, it was just having a trickle down effect. You know, if you think about the Great Commission, what does Jesus say? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, um, if you have parents that don't know the word, obviously they're not gonna be able to teach their children as well. You know, and I mean, when I was in youth ministry and, um, you know, um, was high school class for five years, I, what I always told the parents was like, I'm, I'm, you are the primary disciple makers of your children. I'm here to come alongside of you. I'm not here to replace you, but parents need to know that that is their responsibility. And again, I'm here to assist. I'm here to support in any way that I can. But, you know, as Emil was talking about with the seeker sensitive movement, we're not teaching doctrine. People don't know the word. Now what ends up happening is now parents don't know the word. And then how are they supposed to teach their kids the word? And you just start to see again, this, this effect that goes on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I mentioned earlier that just the ingredients, right. It's remarkable that in this consumer-driven mentality, as we're inviting more and more of the world into the church, it's not just what the church is becoming, but it's also what the church is imbibing from the world. And remarkably, what it's imbibing is some form of postmodernism or relativism or existentialism or some sort of philosophy that is anti-biblical. And so that too sort of lends to the idea that the kind of conversation the Bible is is having, let's say, is not resonating with the culture, <laughs> which is a fundamental mistake of what Christianity is. And at, at some point, guys, I've done a lot of work in this. I've written a lot on this, and I've talked somewhat about it uh, either on my YouTube channel or here, but... I have, a, I have a lot to say about the uniqueness of Christianity or the transcendent nature of Christianity and how that the more we look out at what people's approaches are to culture and church and culture and, and, and how to approach, you know, cultural issues today, the more we are attempting to sound in ways that the world can understand that they find rational, reasonable, appealing convincing, and we're losing the distinctiveness of Christianity. (laughs) I can think of a dozen passages that speak directly to the fact that the world, in fact, will not receive the message of Christianity by the most articulate proponents of Christianity themselves, i.e. Jesus and the apostles. And speaking about Jesus, Sinclair Ferguson moves us into the teaching of Jesus to illustrate this very fact that, in fact, the very teaching of Jesus is not impractical, of course, because when you go to the... Mo- it's not, not only is it not impractical, it's also not anti-doctrinal. Talk about sound words and sound doctrine. Sinclair, on pages two and three, he points out that even the Sermon on the Mount, which is supposed to be some of the most basic, right, like, sayings of Jesus... You know, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger, blessed are the merciful. Uh, These are actually deep theological ideas. (laughs) And so I definitely want to get your guys' thoughts about the fact that the quote-unquote most basic teachings of Jesus are not shallow. And so I'm sure both of you have a lot to say about that, but Kevin, why don't you why don't you start us off on that section? Because I thought this was a brilliant part of the book. Yeah, I mean, I love to. I love Sinclair Ferguson when he said this. You know, he's talking about uh, he's talking about the Lord's Prayer. This is what he says. He says the pattern prayer Christ gave us is a manual of doctrine, if there ever was one. 
It's the fatherhood of God. It's his heavenly existence, his holiness, his name, his kingdom, and its coming. The nature of the divine will, his daily providence, his forgiveness, the problem of temptation, and the existence of the devil. And again, I mean, it's, it's just so rich in, in doctrine and theology. And as you go on this Sermon on the Mount, it's, uh, I mean, obviously you can talk about dealing with issues of the heart from anger to lust to how to, we're to give. What do we do when we're anxious? And you see all the practical implications, but what is it? It's, it's all rooted in doctrine. It's all rooted in, in such rich doctrine. And that's what, again, is as we've talked about, I think that is one of the um, biggest lies in the church today is that doctrine does not impact the way we live. It does, and it does tremendously, and we have to let our people know that. And I know for with myself and, and you two as well, as, as you're talking with people, we take them to the truths of God's word. We let them know, listen, knowing God is vital. It's going to impact the way you live. I mean, even as we're talking, I was thinking of 1 Thessalonians 4 there, when, you know, Paul's, Paul's writing and he's talking about those that are in sexual immorality. But what does he say? Not to be like the Gentiles who what? Do not know God. So what is, what is the remedy then to being sexually pure in this culture? Knowing who? Knowing God. And you think of Psalm 119 verse 9. How can a man young, or how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And so again, you see the truths of God's words. You, you know God, you know him through his word, and that's going to impact the way we live. And I love, again, how Ferguson brings that out. And, uh, and like I said, I'm excited to just continue to dive deep into the truths of, of, of God's word and to see how that works out practically, you know, and pastorally and how we can, um, you know, disciple people with that. Yeah, I, I think there's, and I know, Mike, you would agree with this, but Kevin is, I mean, you, you, you're you right over the target when you're talking about this, Kevin, because matter of fact, in the very next section that you read, that wonderful quote by Ferguson, that's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about that the message that Jesus basically is teaching here is that the knowledge of God and the sure understanding of his character and ways provide the basis for all practical Christian living. And so there is this, sadly today, right, there's this aversion to actually getting to know the attributes of God, to know God as he has revealed himself in scripture. And as a consequence of that, we don't know how to base our lives. And so um, what do we base our lives on there for? Well, if it's not about the knowledge of God, if it's not on the basis of who he is and what he said in his, in his word, and as we discover what his will is, we start basing our lives on things like this. My emotional and psychological well-being. My ability to self-express, to express myself. My ability to be authentic. These things, all rooted in self, begin to fill the void when the character and nature of God does not take precedence as the foundation of our behavior. And so, I don't know, I think, uh, Mike, I want you to speak to that as well, even as we transition uh, to our next point with the teaching of the Apostle Paul. But go ahead and finish up that section, and if you have anything else you'd like to pull together there. Yeah, this section was was profound for me. It definitely impacted, and and I kind of wrote down this idea that, you know, we're we're all theologians, uh, just as you said, but... For the most part, people draw their theology from experience, draw their theology from social issues of the of the day and their community and not the Bible. And there's this undercurrent that the Bible is not important or significant or relevant. Um, and that's you know, I, I would chalk that up as as pastors. We need to own that a little bit because our job is as we open our mouth behind a pulpit and teach doctrine, we have that responsibility to convince the congregation and the hearers of why this matters to their life and how it impacts them, how it how it how it adds value. Like I wrote here, you know, uh, that that 
very line you quoted, that ways provide the basis for all practical Christian living. And I, I kind of just wrote a note there that we need to persuade people, and sadly, we need to persuade a lot of Christians that practical Christian living is important, right? Why, why not just do Buddha, Buddha Christian or Buddha living, you know, um, like why, why would that be less important than Christian living, right? We kind of live in this society that, that, well, why would Christian living benefit me at all? Like, how is that going to, to help? And this goes back to our conversation on, on just absolute, uh, ignorance to, to the Bible and to, to theology, um, and there's also this this scheme of Satan, if you, if you will. The strategy is to oppose um, biblical doctrine and to water it down and to sharpen its edges in the church to such a point where it doesn't cut at all. Um, and, and there's this warfare that goes on with the church that there is an enemy seeking to plug people's ears. And I love the next section. He even talks about, you know, he's, he's talking about in, in the little apocalypse in, in Mark 13 and Luke 21 and Matthew 24, how, how Christ does not impart knowledge for its own sake to a small bond of followers, band of followers. He taught them to enable them to live in a truly Christian way, whatever the circumstances, right? And to live in a truly Christian way. What a precious thing to say that, that I seek to live my life in a way that represents and reflects my King, my Lord, my Savior, Christ, uh, that, that, that alone is is spectacular oh for sure and also in that section it's like this is a short chapter we on page three right now (laughs) it's it's a short (laughs) chapter but it is so ridiculously rich yeah Yeah. and And you asked me to get to paul and i just ignored that I know we're like I don't on, know if we we, can make it. I know we're like on page three already. I know. Yeah, seriously. I think Getting there's like Paul may not be practical. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, listen, when he talks about uh Jesus and telling the church, you know, I'm I'm getting ready to leave. I'm my soul is trouble troubled, and as he goes into the the farewell sayings as the, as they are called there in John thirteen through seventeen. Right, and especially fourteen to seventeen, um, you know, Sinclair says, you know, the disciples are troubled, they're distressed, and, and that's what the text says in John fourteen one and twenty seven. And Sinclair Ferguson says, what is what does Jesus do? How does he respond? Well, how does he respond? He goes to the highest and grandest of Christian doctrines. He goes to the Trinity. And for the rest of that entire section, as you guys well know, he goes into an in-depth discussion, and he brings the, some of the greatest illumination on the doctrine of the Trinity, the Godhead, and the various roles and the nature of the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, and vice versa. And it's so completely counterintuitive to what the world would think would be useful in that moment. When someone is mentally and psychologically and emotionally distressed, you're going to give them the doctrine of the Trinity? <laughs> why don't you give them a pill? <laughs> or, or why don't you give them some tea? <laughs> or why don't, you, why don't you tell them that they're, they're good enough and kind enough and, and, and doggone it, people like them? That's the therapeutic model. The therapeutic model substitutes man's real needs and gives them false needs. The therapeutic model gives man, you know, gives them a sense of, hey, we'll give you different and distinct crisis and burdens from what the Bible says your real crisis and your burdens are. Your real crisis is to know God. Your real crisis is to, is to rely on God and completely abandon reliance upon yourself. That's your real need as a Christian. 
Whereas in the world, the therapeutic model is everything, again, coming back to how to trust more in yourself. And uh, it is so deceptive, and I know you guys would agree, but we are in a complete deluge of that kind of thinking in the American church today. Um, And as we think about the Apostle Paul, uh, Sinclair Ferguson begins talking about Paul, who is the greatest theologian, save the Lord himself, in the New Testament, right? And Sinclair Ferguson asks this question, can the man that wrote these words be regarded as impractical, meaning he doesn't understand practical life? He doesn't understand reality, being real, going through stuff, as we say, right? He doesn't understand the muck and the mire of life. You don't think he understands your financial problems? You don't think he understands your parental problems or your marriage problems or whatever? This is a man that has a litany of very serious sufferings and afflictions in this world. What stood out to you guys in this section? Because I thought it was just super profound. I thought, yeah, I mean, what I was reading this, what actually popped into my mind was uh, the book of Philippians. Here, Paul's writing from prison. And what does he say? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I mean, you think about being in a Roman prison and you're commanding people rejoice in the Lord. You know God. You know his character, you know his sovereignty, you know you know him if you're going to do that in that situation. And and it just made me think, as I was even reading this, as uh, Sinclair Ferguson went through just obviously, you know, Paul's affl- our afflictions in 2 Corinthians 11, um, just how easily swayed I can be when kind of maybe the comfort's pulled out from under, from under me. And, um, man, I just thought, man, I could be a soft American man reading that. And, but the reality comes down to this is, am I believing rightly about God? Or do I know God in that that's going to sustain me? Because the reality of the situation is, is if any of us found ourselves in the future in prison, we are to rejoice in the Lord. And the only way that we're going to do that is if we know him. Hmm. Yeah. He says, he, he asked that question, what sustained Paul under these pressures? And here's the answer. There is only one possible answer. He had a vital knowledge of the character of God, the work of Christ, the nature of God's ways, and then dwelling power of the Holy Spirit. His life was characterized by the power which the truth released in his experience. Right? How did he? How did he survive the lashings, the beatings, the the night and day, uh, all of those things? Because he had a rich understanding of who God is. Right, and sadly, yeah, no. we live in a day where people don't want that. Right? What is it? Is it John John seventeen where he says, "This is eternal life." Right, that they might know Christ and know God. And and sadly, I think a lot of so-called Christians, they don't want eternal life because they don't want to know Christ and they don't want to know God. Uh, and that's evident through the way we live, through how we act. Uh, and he goes on to, to, to talk there and he exhorts Christians, use your minds, give your bodies to the Lord as an act of intelligent worship. Yeah. Amen. And actually on, on, on this section here, Romans 12, um, Sinclair points out the dependence on using the mind, like you said. And even in a passage where it's very practical. And so, Kevin, what do you, what do you think Sinclair is really after here? What is he trying to get to here in this section? I think what he's saying is, you know, you look at Romans 1 through 11, and uh, God's mercies have been expounded in that. And now it's now in light of what he has done, live like this. And I was thinking too, even in Ephesians, it's, hey, Ephesians 1, it's God chose you. He predestined you before the foundation of the world. You know, Ephesians 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And then when we get to chapter 4, it's what? 
Therefore, I, I beseech you, and it, it's always in light of what Christ has done, of what God has done. And it, and you look at Romans chapter 1 through 11, it, it is just so rich theologically. And you get to Romans 12, it's what? Therefore. And I think that's really important, you know, and, um, and that's what I said, like, and as, as we're teaching, as we're discipling, as, as we're pastoring people, letting people know that doctrine does matter and using those examples in Romans, using those as examples in Ephesians, look at what Christ has done for you now live in light of this. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's absolutely phenomenal. And I know I, I knew that when we took up this book, and as I was just working through the pages, I realized, boy, we are going to um, we're going to struggle with an embarrassment of riches because there's so much here that we could just go on and on and on forever. Like I want to hear each one of you guys on everything that we have to talk about individually, because each of you will have so much insight into what we're talking about. But this next thing, and it's on page six. And it just stood out to me so much, because let's be honest, you guys, as we talk about all this rich theology, and even as we're trying to connect the dots for people, to say that the overarching point that we're trying to make here is this, that your theology better impact your life, and that you better take theology serious in order for theology to have an impact on your life, but... Sinclair Ferguson talks about, look, if this does not have an impact on you, right? If it doesn't make an impression, then guess what? You, as a self-proclaimed Christian, won't be able to make an impression or an impact either. I thought that was very, very profound. Let me just read what he says here. He says, our, he says here, um, uh, he says, we have made little or no impression upon the world for the very reason that the gospel doctrine has made a correspondingly slight impression upon us. It cannot be overemphasized that men and women who have accomplished anything in God's strength have always done so on the basis of their grasp of truth. And so uh, the reason I want to just jump up and down on this point right here is because if we're honest in the pastoral ministry, in the counseling room, I think this is maybe one of the biggest issues, right? Because we throw out a bunch of truth. We, we, you know, as pastors, hopefully, if you know the word, is <laughs> talking about a, 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 a topic like this, we better know the word, <laughs> at least to some degree, right, guys? But the reality is, is you throw this at people and I think the very worst thing and maybe the most challenging thing in that moment is what if it's not making an impact, right? And what do we do at that point? And so I just, I don't know, Mike, maybe you want to take this one here. Wow. What a great question. Uh, and we skipped over this, but on page one, it's kind of like his thesis. It says the conviction that Christian doctrine matters for Christian living is one of the most important growth points of the Christian life, mm. right? That Christian doctrine matters <clears throat> is one of the most important growth points for the Christian life, right? That you, you cannot separate the depth of understanding of doctrine and the, the depth of your practical practical living. They, they go hand in hand, the depth of your worship, the depth of the depth of, of everything you, you do. And yeah, he's absolutely right. A lot of modern American Christianity has next to no real vital impact, uh, because it's devoid of that rich theology and connecting a person's mind and their heart to the the preciousness of Christ um, as pastors is our job right I, i'm I'm pleading every time I'm at the at the pulpit look to Christ he is supremely valuable right stop putting your value in things that don't matter the things that provide you nothing and look to Christ 
right? And our dependency on the Holy Spirit there to actually do the work, to actually take that gospel and and bring that vitality into their into their life is that's it. We're we're just dependent upon the Spirit. Amen. Yeah, I would say too is just with that is just the importance. And I, I was just even thinking too. Anytime I do premarital or marital counseling, I talk about the perseverance of the saints. Because I let them know and I just say, hey, this marriage you're entering into or this covenant that you've made, it's it's a reflection of Christ in the church. And for those that Christ has saved, he will not divorce his bride. You know, we talk, talk about perseverance of saints, eternal security, you know, whatever you want to say, once saved, always saved. But you're putting your marriage, you're putting the gospel on display with your marriage. And we, if, if you decide to leave that marriage you're shattering the picture of the gospel because Christ will never leave or forsake his bride. And so you think like, oh, okay, we're going through premarital. How are we going to live together? Um, you know, um, just whatever the practical aspects, I always start with theology and I say, this is the purpose of marriage and, and let that. And, and so, you know, when I tell people that they're just like, oh, okay. And a lot of people may not know that, or, you know, if they did, maybe hopefully it'll sink in deeper into the truth. Uh, the truth will sink deeper into their heart. But um, I think as Emilio, you said, theology matters. It undergirds everything. Um, it undergirds the way that you, you look at your marriage, how you treat your spouse, um, just how you live your life everything is undergirded by the truths of God's word and theology. And if we're going to neglect that, yeah. it's obviously we're going to see that in, in, in an individual's lives and, and even in our own lives as well. You know, if we, if we are neglecting it yeah. in God's word. Yeah. Yeah. You know, exactly um, what Mike read on the first page of this in terms of the growth points of Christianity, right? Um it was Joel Beakey. Uh, I dug up this quote by Joel Beakey that I thought was so good. He said, a mindless Christianity will promote a spineless Christianity. And I thought that was, that's interesting because I don't know where your guys, where, I don't know where your mind went when you think of a spineless Christianity. And I don't go directly to the flames of martyrdom. I'm thinking about conviction that as a Christian, um, if you don't, if you have a mindless Christianity, in other words, a, a Christianity that's devoid of theology, devoid of doctrine, you don't understand why you believe what you believe. You you don't know why you're defending what you're defending. You you don't know what you're fighting for as a Christian. And really, if you're not careful, and this is why the the, the idea of apostasy has to come in at this point, because if you're not careful, a mindless Christianity can produce the kind of person that wakes up one day and is confronted with the idea of why am I trying to conform my entire life to this, to this standard, to this rule of faith, to this theology, to this doctrine, to this, to this faith. And if you don't understand it, you will not have a proper foundation for the answer for those questions. And you, you, you'll, you'll sort of forget, why am I doing all of this? Right? And you're looking for the wrong result. You're, if you have the wrong basis, you're going to be looking for the wrong results. And you're, you're going to be wondering, let's say you're a mom, you're homeschooling. But if you don't homeschool with deep theological convictions and catechizing your kids, suddenly you start wondering, why, you know, why, don't I, why, why don't I just do what the other moms do and just go put my kids in school and forget about them for eight hours, right? Hey, hey. Not, not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, although public schools are supremely dangerous nowadays, but you know what I mean. Any domestic sphere, whether you're a mom or whether you're a, 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 a child in a Christian home trying to conform to what your parents are telling you, if you don't have a worldview worked out, if the only thing you have is, well, I'm doing it because mom and dad told me to, you know, that's not a worldview. That's just pragmatism. It doesn't work. It's utility, and so I think it's so. I think it's so important, man. What what Joe Beaky is trying to get at there, you know, and and it just I don't know. It it really is. I, I think final thoughts. I think we should remind everyone of the confidence that doctrine, therefore, shall bring. 
how it shapes our life and how ultimately it enriches our worship because that's where that's where Sinclair goes at the very end of this uh, glorious chapter he goes to a quote by B.B. Warfield and he talks about how doctrine should mold your life and mold your character and inform your worship and that's exactly what it should ultimately do if I may guys let me read this last phrase here on page 8 and then I'll have both of you comment He says, the Christian doctrines are life-shaping. They show us the God we worship and illuminate our understanding of his son's love and his spirit's work. They form the foundation of the Christian life. And so, Mike, final thoughts on this really, really great little chapter here in this book. Wow. I mean, I have probably 55 final thoughts. Um, (laughs) As this chapter should waken up our our hearts for worship, that we have the privilege to know Almighty God, right? And when we grasp that, when we understand that, that's your point. The practical Christian living, why don't I just go sleep around and, and eat, drink, and be merry? Well, because God, right? Because God is holy, because God is righteous. He always does what is, what is just. I love this quote that uh, Sinclair Ferguson says, as we find our minds expanded by the grace of God, our hearts should be correspondingly enlarged with love to him for all that he has done for us in Christ. Right? There is a, a practical worship a practical help for our daily lives. I talked with our, our high school students last night and I shared with them, you should be preaching the gospel to yourself every single day because it reminds us who we are, reminds us who God is, reminds us of what God has done and what God has accomplished on our behalf. And when we grasp that and when we preach it to our, our minds and our hearts every single day, our 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 natural bent is to sing praises, right? Our natural, our natural inclination is to come out of anxiety, to come out of depression, to come out of all of those things that are weighing us down when we behold our God. Uh, that's what, that's what makes life worth living. Amen. I would just say doctrine matters. Just, it does. All right, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. <laughs> Doctrine matters, and um, my my encouragement for for anybody listening is, um, and we're all the three of us are right here with you. Is dive deep into the truths of God's word. Um, you know, um, and especially as pastors, get, get this book. Get this get book, book. Get this book. Um, study study show, show yourself approved. You know, and uh, and that's what we need to do. And it takes time, it takes effort, but but to know Christ and 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 to behold Him and and let that rise in worship and adoration for what He has done for us um, impacts our lives tremendously. As Mike, you said, you know, telling the students just to continue to preach the gospel every single day, and I think that's a good word too, just because of the fact is we need to be reminded of the truth of what God has saved us from. Um, that Christ paid the penalty. He took the holy and righteous wrath of God. He's the propitiation for our sins. And uh, man, what a glorious future and hope we have. And, um, and you know, as I, as I study the word of God and as I, you know, obviously meditating on, on its truths, I, I don't want to grieve the spirit. You know, I want my life to reflect who I worship. And, and so, yes, doctrine does matter. And um, last encouragement, maybe got a, um, a, a parent out there as well with kids. I would encourage them as well to, uh, to disciple their children, to catechize their kids, do those things. That, that, that is vital, um, you know, to get the truths of God's word into to these young kids at, at such an early age. Phenomenal. Guys, great insights, great feedback, great discussion, and uh, awesome content, right? I mean, this is, this is uh, really easy to talk about because it's so, it's so rich and good, but 10,000-foot uh, view, 
next week, Lord willing, we're going to go into the nuts and bolts. Uh, it's interesting because the cover is nuts and bolts, right? Next week, we talk about the importance of the image of God, a remarkable chapter. Man, I can't wait for that one, guys. So thank you guys so much for being here again. And uh, for our listeners, make sure and stay tuned, subscribe, share the episode, and never miss another episode of Christ and Kingdom. God bless. God bless.